Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Corral. Thank you, church. Beautiful, beautiful lyrics, beautiful singing, beautiful hearts. Um, thank you, uh, Scott and others, for uh, handling the worship service so well. The great message last week. I uh, live-streamed it. I was up in Flagstaff for the Canyon Ministries biannual board of directors meeting and then a 25-year anniversary celebration banquet. And I used to be that when my family and I would travel, we would find a church and go to it. And that was, that was nice and good because you meet some new people. But it is a great blessing to be able to uh, live stream and just continue uh, with your own body. It's not a substitute for church, but it is a great blessing and a good message. And I did hear uh, Scott's self-deprecating humor, uh, something on, the, li- on lines, the lines of uh, B-team preaching. Uh, but the reason why I say that is because I, I'll tell you this, true statement, if I was... Uh, looking for a new church, maybe moving somewhere, and I went to a church, and Scott Mom was preaching there every week, I would look no further. That's where I would go to church, or Tim Palin, or Justin Parker, or David Lupinetti. Um, you get the point. We are so blessed by the godly men at this church, godly women as well. It is a joy and is a blessing, and as we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, uh, I will say that I looked at my notes from my uh, introduction and overview message to Hebrews, and regarding the authorship, I did say this, quote, if some famous unknown didn't write Hebrews, Apollos is as good a fit as any. So be that as it may. So he is, uh, would probably be my top choice, although I think we still don't know who wrote it. But eternity will tell as we look forward to that fellowship. And beloved, as part of the uh, Canyon Ministries uh, that I was up in Flagstaff. It was a great blessing being up there. It's uh, even a better blessing to come home. And it is interesting. It was 25 years ago that, oh, actually about 28 years ago, three years before Canyon Ministry started, that a man named Tom Vale, he had had a previous corporate uh, life, and he went to the Grand Canyon, fell in love with it, and resigned from his corporate uh, responsibilities, became a river guide. And he was going along and basically giving the evolutionary model as he would do the river tours through the Grand Canyon because that was what he had been taught. Uh, He testifies now that even before his salvation, something always didn't quite sit right with him, but that was what he uh, regurgitated, what he taught. Um, One time he had a lady that was on a trip, and she actually evangelized him and gave him the gospel after she went back to North Carolina. She uh, sent him a Bible, and God saved him through that gospel presentation through reading the Bible. And then a couple years after that, he actually married that uh, lady. And then Tom and Paula Vale began Canyon Ministries 25 years ago. In the first year, there were 11 souls that they basically took through the river. Uh, Now, 25 years later, we're blessed to run about 3,000 souls every year through the river, through rim tours, backpacking trips, and others as well. Um, Going forward, that was the road traveled, the road to come. Uh, we are thinking what we might do in the next 25 years. Uh, one of the visions we have is to form a Southwest Grand Canyon Creation Center, something maybe similar to the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum, but different, uh, where there could be a museum component, there could be a conference center, could be Creation Boot Camp, a research center for people to come, for uh, young earth creation-minded scientists to come and study the amazing geology uh, here. But uh, all that to say, brothers and sisters, that as we were doing this process and sorting through what we might do going forward, we actually did a six critical question exercise. It was from a book called The Advantage, Why Organizational Health Trumps Everything Else in Business by Patrick Lencioni. 
Uh, the level one question of these six critical questions is, what is your core principle? What is the core principle for why you do what you do? In our case, the verbiage we came up with was that Canyon Ministries exists to glorify God with his word and the evidence of his creation so as to move people closer to God. And it wasn't until we got to the level three question where the subject of trips and tours even came up. And beloved, I say all this because as you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, our passage this morning are the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 8. What we have here is the crux interpretum. It is the main point. It is the core principle of what this incredible author, whomever he might be, had in mind when he wrote this book. We could think of it even this way. I have said before that this magnificent epistle, this letter to the Hebrews, could be thought of as a sermonic epistle. It is a letter, but it really carries great weight and form in terms of a sermon. And in some ways, you could even look at chapters 1 through 7, the road that we've traveled so far as the introduction. And now in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we have the proposition. We have the big idea, the crux interpretum of the entire book. We are in our journey through this book at the crossroads of the road traveled and the road to come. You will remember that this was written by the author to a congregation of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Understanding that, they used to go to the temple. The temple is still there for another few years at the time of this writing. They would go to the temple for worship. Now they worship in a house church. There's no altar, no sacrifices, no robes, no aprons, no feasts in Jerusalem, no seventh-day Sabbath observance, no kosher food laws. And the challenge, the danger is they have people saying, loved ones, family members, neighbors saying, come back, come back to what you can see, what you can hold on to, what you can smell, rather than worshiping in an environment where there's no accoutrements, there's no bells and whistles, there's nothing that you can see, nothing that is tangible. Well, beloved, turn, if you haven't already, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews, the entire book is impregnated with the Old Testament. Uh, the author, pastor, preacher of this letter quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. And in fact, next week and beyond, when we get into the rest of chapter 8, we will encounter the longest quotation from the Old Testament anywhere to be found in the New Testament. In chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, there is a direct quote from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, where the topic, you will see the first appearance of that two-word phrase, new covenant. The new covenant that God prophesied to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 31. And these people, the congregation, they knew the Old Testament in Greek, and so because of that, the author quotes the Septuagint. I think it's because of the audience. But beloved, listen, the passage this morning are verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to read all the way up through verse 6 to give a fuller flavor of what we have before us in the road yet to come. This is Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. The word of God says, Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not 
man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is a necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. And beloved, bottom line, as we would know from certainly the entire scripture, we would know from the entire letter of Hebrews, and right here, we need Jesus. We need Jesus because he mediates a better covenant, based on better promises. And even today, as we will approach the communion table at the, after the message, almost at the end of the sermon, it will prepare our hearts for communion. And Beloved, understand this, that what we see in these two verses is your great and perfect high priest is seated at the right hand of God in heaven and he ministers in the true tabernacle, also in heaven. Understanding a different way from these two verses, his atoning work for you is done. His advocating work for you continues on, even right now, as I preach, as you listen, as we fellowship. So let's begin in verse 1. Beloved, dearly beloved, brother and sister, your great high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high in heaven. His atoning work for you is done. It is complete. It is finished. Look at how he begins in verse 1. The author says, now the main point in what has been said, the main point, the chief point, the principal thing, the sum total of all reckoning, this word when it was used in the financial circles back at that time would describe the principal capital of all the summation. But understand this, when he says the main point, the author is not just providing a summary of the road traveled so far, of what he's taught before. This is, again, the crux interpretum, the fulcrum, the hinge, the leif motif, the locus classicus. This is the main point in what has been said. What he's taught for seven chapters, look at the text, is this. We have such a high priest. The high priesthood of Christ Christ Jesus, the Son, as the perfect high priest, is a, if not the, central theme of the entire letter. This was introduced to us back in chapter 2, verse 17. The author there said, He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Or chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Or chapter 4, verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Or we can think of chapter 5 through chapter 7, the preceding three chapters where the author went to great lengths describing how the priesthood of Jesus is not 
according to the order of the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood, rather according to the order of the priesthood of this mysterious figure of a man named Melchizedek that we met back in Genesis 14. Abraham met this man. So for three chapters, he has brought out that. Now, having said that, what else could the author possibly say about Jesus' ministry as the perfect high priest? And, beloved, what we will see is from this point forward, for the rest of chapter 8, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, two and a half chapters, he will continue to elaborate and say more about the high priesthood of Jesus before the author pivots in chapter 10, verse 19, and turns from this great, rich, foundational doctrine that he's been building up at that point for ten and a half chapters and turns towards application. So, though he has said much, he will repeat himself and say even more. The text says, we have such a high priest. Now, understanding all of this, Understanding that the author says the main point, what we might have bated breath wondering, what is he going to say? Is he going to talk about Jesus, the high priest, being God himself, being our creator, being the one who is the inheritor of all things, the one who holds all things together by the power of his word? Will he bring out how he is reigning now and will reign forever? Well, when we look at the text, his main point is your high priest is sitting down. That seems anticlimactic. I mean, the the main point of the whole book is that our high priest is sitting down. He says at the end of verse 1, who, we have such a high priest, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So that's his lead point in the main point of what has been said. And We understand that a king will sit. A king sits to receive his subjects to himself. A judge sits to render judgment. A teacher at that time, at the time of this writing, a teacher would sit in order to teach. So there is a nobility to a noble sitting. We can think of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. The prophet Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. That's the kind of background, that's the kind of doctrine, the picture that these Jewish Christians would have in their mind when they read what the author says to them here. And Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne. This is a position of high honor. The person at the right hand of the throne, at the right hand of the king, was the most powerful and the most prestigious noble in the royal court. So the son is here exalted to the place of supreme honor and authority at the right hand of God. And this, of course, even flows from what we saw in chapters 5 through 7, where not only did the author continue the theme of Jesus as a high priest, but by virtue of drawing our attention to how he is the fulfillment of even what Psalm 110 verse 4 says, that it is according, he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, that that means he is not just priest, he is also king. It is joining together of the two offices. He is the priest king or the king priest, the king of righteousness by virtue of the name Melchizedek, the king of peace because Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the king of Shalom, the king of peace. Also, this sitting that is the central motif at this point by the author is a fulfillment 
of Psalm 110, verse 1. Where at the very beginning of that psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that is a fulfillment of that mighty prophecy in Psalm 110. This is also the subject and how the author of Hebrews opens up this epistle. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, you'll read the words, He, the Son, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, of the nature of God. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, watch this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it is a fulfillment, this sitting down, a fulfillment of Psalm 110. It's how the author of Hebrews opens up this epistle. It's also a prophecy that Jesus himself gave to the chief priests and scribes when he was having his mock trial with them as recorded by Luke. Luke 22 verse 67 and 69 the chief priests and scribes say to Christ if you are the Christ tell us but he said to them if I tell you you will not believe and if I ask a question you will not answer but from now on the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus himself prophesied this. So this sitting nature is powerful. And understand this, dear friend, understand this, beloved. Jesus is not sitting to rest. He is sitting to rule. This carpenter from Nazareth is Lord of lords. He is king of kings. He is Lord over all. The great and awesome providences of the earth are under his feet. The storm and tempest bend to his will, bend to the will of the one who sits at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And also we want to be good students and understand the reaction and the thinking of the original audience. For this Jewish Christians, for these Jewish Christians, they would understand that the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Covenant tabernacle, and the temple as well, there was no place for the priest to sit. Basically, even when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the great day of atonement, he would not stay there because the priest didn't belong there. No old covenant priest ever sat while performing his duties because his task was never finally accomplished. Look at, for example, just a page over, chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. The author says, Every priest, chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So every old covenant priest, beloved, stands daily because their ministry is unfinished and incomplete. Their Work was like a shadow dancing on the wall of a cave. In fact, we'll get to that when we get into verses 3 through 6, is the shadow and the copy of what had been under the old is now realized in the reality and substance of the new. So the old covenant priest's work was never finished, but the new covenant high priest Jesus' work is finished. His atoning work is finished. It's done. It's complete. Tetelestai, it is finished. He who is dead is alive forevermore. All was accomplished in the sight of God. All the sins of God's people are forgiven. All past, 
present, and future sins of God's people are forgiven. All of God's children are washed. All of God's adopted sons and daughters are justified. We are all ready for our inheritance that we will receive because by God's grace and mercy, we are, you are, joint heirs with Christ. The Apostle Paul gives a good application of this doctrine when he wrote to the church in Colossae. Colossians 3 verse 1 Paul said, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What the Apostle Paul there is saying, he's telling us that heaven-born people cannot be satisfied with earth-born remedies. We can enjoy God's blessings. We can enjoy the beauty of his creation. But ultimate satisfaction for a child of God only comes from what awaits us in heaven. We can, in a word, live victoriously here on earth by fixing our mind and devotion and attention on heaven. So, beloved, your great high priest is now seated at the right hand of God. And he also ministers in the true tabernacle in heaven. His atoning work is done. His advocating work continues. Look at the beginning of verse 2. The author calls the son a minister, the high priest a minister. This is interesting. The Greek word is not the normal word that's translated as minister. It's a compound word that comes from two different words. One of the words is a word that means for the sake of the people. The other word is a word that means to work or to serve, sometimes even to worship. So the point is the author here uses this word to let you know that your high priest works for your sake. He works for the sake of his people. By way of example, this word was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Nehemiah 10, verse 39. The sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, new wine, and oil to the priests who are ministering. Same word. Or in Philippians 2, verse 25, a well-known unknown by the name of Epaphroditus, which actually this was the penultimate uh, unknown or well-known unknown that Scott preached in September of 2019 in the seven-year four-part series Epaphroditus so I commend that to you but this is what Paul wrote in Philippians 2 verse 25 Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my needs same word Beloved, the point is Christ is your minister on your behalf in the dwelling place of God in heaven. That's why he says, look at verse 2 further, that he is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. In the sanctuary, literally in the holy places. Uh, The tabernacle, the tabernacle was the tent where God met with his people after their delivery and exodus from Israel. Egypt, when they were wandering in the wilderness. He had not yet, at that point, commanded the nation of Israel to build a temple, but they were to pitch this tent, pitch this tabernacle, and it was at that place that God would come and would meet them. So it's interesting, the author here doesn't reference the temple, he references the tabernacle, but more to the point, the true tabernacle. Now, 
understand when he qualifies this as the true tabernacle, he's not drawing a contrast between the true and the false. He's drawing a contrast between the eternal and ultimate versus the temporary and fading away. He's drawing a contrast. The heavenly substance is being contrasted with the earthly symbol. And the point, beloved, is Jesus is not, even though he said it is finished, even though his atonement is perfect, complete, it is, to be sure, even as the author says elsewhere in the epistle, a once-for-all sacrifice. While that is done and complete, his advocating work is not. He is ministering, he is mediating, he is interceding, he is advocating for you right now in heaven at the right hand of God. So he is a sitting ruler and he is a standing intercessor. He's seated in his redemptive work. He is standing in his intercessory work. That's why Stephen, godly Stephen, who was the first New Testament martyr, in his magnificent sermon recorded in Acts 7 verse 56, Stephen says, behold, as they're getting ready to stone him to death, Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Or the Apostle Paul, when he had the vision on the Isle of Patmos, John, Revelation 5, verse, um, John, the Apostle John, in Revelation 5, verse 6 says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. So again, beloved, he is your sitting ruler. He is also your standing intercessor. I had a wonderful opportunity besides the uh, blessings with the board meeting and the celebration banquet. I actually met up with a grade school, high school friend that I haven't seen, I won't say how many years, but it was a very long time ago. I hadn't seen in very many years, so I met up with him and his wife, whom I'd never met before, and I didn't know. I, I took him to Walnut Canyon and Sunset Crater, and then we had a nice you know, dinner, all the rest of that, but I didn't know until I met up with them that they're actually part of the LDS church, and they're very open. We had a wonderful time, so they told me some about their perspective, and I was able to give them and quote some scripture about the gospel, and about being saved by faith alone apart from works of the law, quoting Ephesians 2, 8 uh, through 10. We're saved by faith alone. Uh, our justification where God, the holy, righteous judge, declares the unjust pardon. Our justification is a point in time. It happens at our conversion. Our sanctification, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God, as we are transformed from glory to glory, that is a process. So this is some of what we talked about. In the same way, beloved, the atonement is complete. His intercession is ongoing. So even the atonement ties in to the point of justification, of your justification, of your conversion, your being born again. And his intercession is tied into even your sanctification of growing in Christ. Also, wonder of wonders, beauty of beauties, we understand that what happens to the master will happen to the disciple. Jesus had trials and tribulations far beyond any other human being. You also, we also will have trials and tribulations just like our Savior before us. There are many losses and crosses in this life. And we also share in his resurrection. 
We share, will share, well, I should say, we will share in his resurrection. We will share in his ascension, and we will share in his coronation at the right hand of the majesty on high in heaven. John also, Revelation 3, verse 21, Jesus himself, John is quoting the words that in his vision he heard from the risen, reigning Jesus. Revelation 3, 21, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him, and by extension to him and or her, to sit down with me on my throne. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So, beloved, this main point that the author is bringing out here even flows into what you and I wonder of wonders, expect and hope for and will be realized when we enter into eternity. And then finally, the author finishes out, look at the end of verse 2, about the true tabernacle. The true tabernacle, part of the reason why it was true, not meaning not false, but true meaning eternal and ultimate. Part of the reason why this tabernacle is a true tabernacle is because it was that which the Lord pitched, not man. This is contrast between the apparent and the real, between what was primarily set up, primarily focused here, what was set up by man, even though that which was set up by man under the old covenant was ordained by God. Exodus chapter 33, God gave instruction as to how to set up and to pitch the tent. But this tabernacle, the true tabernacle, is not pitched by man. It is pitched by God. This is something that, again, righteous Stephen also preached about before he went home to be with the Lord. A few verses earlier, Acts 7, verses 48 and 49, Stephen said, The Most High, by the way, the Most High, El Elyon, that beautiful name of God, that name of God, which actually in some ways is even a greater name than Yahweh, that name that we first encountered in Genesis 14 when we met Melchizedek. Stephen says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? That was righteous Stephen. The Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, he was Saul. He was there holding the cloaks of the men that murdered Stephen. Saul heard Stephen's sermon. And when God saved Saul, he became Paul. And when Paul, the Apostle, was preaching to the Epicurean Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill... In Acts 17, he basically quotes even what he heard from Stephen. Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, watch this, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Beloved, the tent in the wilderness, the tabernacle, the tabernacle that's not the true tabernacle, was ordained by God, and that old tabernacle in the wilderness represented a heavenly reality. And this is something the author of Hebrews will pick up even in the next chapter. Chapter 9, verse 11, you may see it there. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. 
Or verse 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So what the author is telling the original audience here, and most of us here in this audience right now, some 2,000 years later, even if you're doubly blessed to have some Jewish background, you're probably not particularly tempted to go back and to be pulled back to the Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrificial system. But all of us on this side of eternity will always face the temptation as we struggle with this body of death, the old vices, the old selfishness, the old way of thinking, maybe even the old trappings of religion. That is the draw. And what the author is saying, what God is saying is don't deal in the realm of the cardboard cutout. Don't get so focused on the poster that you miss the person. And the author here wrote to stir the members of this Jewish Christian assembly to recognize God wrote it for us so that we will recognize we can't turn the clock back. We must hold firmly to our faith that was once for all delivered and was based upon the once for all sacrifice that is done and is finished and is upheld and strengthened and moved forward by the continual intercession of your high priest in heaven. And this even answers one variation of life's most important question. How can a sinful man, how can a sinful woman approach a holy God? In the Old Covenant, there was always a veil of separation. But in Christ, there is full and immediate access. And beloved, once you have the Son as high priest and sacrifice, why would you go back to the old system? And this true tabernacle, again, is pitched by God. That means that we should understand salvation is not a little bit of believing and a little bit of doing. True salvation is all believing. Don't desert the meal to go and try to feast on the menu, is what God tells us here. And we will see as we go forward, the author has much more material to cover on this topic, but this is the capstone. And beloved, now, as we approach the communion table, this is a great passage to remind us that we don't look back even to the Passover lamb in Egypt. Rather, as we sang in the beautiful song, <clears throat> we look to the Lamb of God. We remember that the blood of the sacrificial animal in the Old Covenant sealed the Old Covenant. But it is the blood of the man, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that seals the New Covenant. The, even the phrase, the New Covenant, I believe I mentioned before, we first encounter that in Jeremiah chapter 31. And we'll see that when we get into verses 8 through 12 of this chapter. We encounter it next in good Dr. Luke's gospel, Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, when Christ instituted communion, when they celebrated the final old Passover supper that was recognized by God, and he instituted the first Lord's supper, the communion, the same form of worship that you and I will be doing together. And in Luke 22, verse 20, you read the words where Jesus says, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That is at the epicenter, even of what we study here in Hebrews 8, 1 through 2, because the old covenant had its place. It points us to the fact we need a Savior. But the new covenant is the covenant that forgives. It's the covenant that keeps. It's the covenant that saves forever. 
The old covenant was written on stone. It was written with ink. The new covenant is written on the heart. It's written on your heart. It's written on my heart. May this be on your heart and my heart now as we approach the communion table. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that you are righteous. You are holy. We praise you, Lord God, that you don't tolerate sin. But thank you, Lord, for providing a path for forgiveness, a way of escape. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work you accomplished once for all at the cross. And we praise you, Lord God, and are eternally grateful for the work you do now for us in the true tabernacle in heaven. Dear God, as we approach this table, help us to remember, Lord Jesus, what you have done and accomplished on our behalf. It is for your glory and for your honor that we do this. And it's in your name that we pray and come to the table. Amen.